It's Friday, February 3rd. I'm Stephen Fee, and this is The Pen Pod, a podcast from Pen America. On today's edition, our Friday roundup of major free speech issues. This week, Facebook lifts its political ad ban. Conservatives go wild over the supposed cancellation of Dr. Seuss and the crisis in Myanmar. Then, novelist, professor, and leader of Pen America's Dallas-Fort Worth chapter, Sandria Fay. She wrote in The New Yorker of her terrifying encounter with the police and how she is working to strengthen literary activism in Dallas. I'm Stephen Fee. All that coming up on The Pen Pod. It's Friday, which means it's time for some tough questions about free speech and free expression. For that, we're joined by Pen America CEO, Suzanne Nossel. Hey, Suzanne. Hi, Stephen. So, Suzanne, Facebook announced this week uh, that it would lift its ban on so-called political ads. Uh, They originally put that ban in place to stem the tide of disinformation around the election, or at least that's what they said. From what we know, um, is suspending advertising the right call from a free speech point of view? And and considering how disinformation hasn't really gone anywhere, um, does this mean Facebook is lowering its defenses? Look, I don't think they're obligated to run political ads. Twitter has banned political ads on the platform. They did so in the run-up to the election, and I don't think there is much talk of them reversing course. Uh, You know, when it comes to Facebook, there are arguments on both sides. Many people have pointed out that it is often the lesser-known candidate who can begin to build momentum through Facebook ads, which relative to radio and television ads are much cheaper, so can offer somebody a foothold and therefore be, you know, kind of a a, a democratic catalyst in the sense that you can get yourself started there. On the other hand, we know that Facebook ads have absolutely been weaponized, whether it's in the context of the 2016 election where, you know, Russian internet trolls were masquerading as organizers for Black Lives Matter in different states across the country and inviting people to rallies and events and to join Facebook groups under utterly false and misleading pretenses. You know, we've also seen the context of Brexit, uh, those sorts of ads were uh, targeted uh, at a micro level to reach the most vulnerable voters with tendentious, uh, you know, certainly sort of leading uh, and, and questionable, dubious claims that never saw the light of day until the referendum was over with because they were so narrowly targeted that nobody who was in a position to rebut the ad ever even saw it. And so the dangers are clear, and that's what's led what led Facebook to in the run-up to the election uh, impose this ban the days before the vote and the days after the vote. Uh, you know they are sloppy in how they implement it. This is not a highly refined uh, exercise of human judgment. I mean, we've seen just a pen America. I can remember one time. Uh, I mean, this was a couple of years ago with a similar policy, but we had a event to mark the 100th anniversary of the birth of Nelson Mandela, and it got flagged as a political post. And, you know, eventually we got it through, but not after, uh, without some haggling back and forth. And there are other ads. I know we had an ad for a post-election annual general meeting event, and they raised questions about whether that was a political ad. And so, 
you know, it really underscores their over-reliance on artificial intelligence and machine learning to track uh, what ads fall afoul of their policy. And, you know, it can include, it's sort of that blurry line between issue ads and political ads can sweep up a lot of content from advocacy organizations like ours that I don't think anybody would construe as straight up political in the sense of, uh, you know, what, what it is that they're trying to target and the harm that they're trying to prevent. You know, I, I think one of the most important things that they have said they are now doing is ensuring that when paid ads are placed on the platform, that they know exactly who the sort of beneficial payer is, you know, who is behind the ad? Do they have a U.S. address? Is it a known organization? Because we've seen the proliferation of these very shadowy, whether it's foreign uh, or domestic uh, actors and entities that uh, obscure their true identity in order to purvey messages and try to influence our politics uh, in insidious ways. And so I hope Facebook is pouring a lot more resources into ensuring it knows who its advertisers are. And I also hope they are serious about a truth in advertising policy, which, you know, you would require for, you know, for example, drug ads or uh, ads making claims about health and safety in relation to food. I think with when it comes to political ads, if there are demonstrable false statements and claims that those should be reviewed ahead of time, not just uh, subject to a system whereby if somebody reports it, there is scrutiny and perhaps it's taken down, but rather if it's a paid ad, not letting it go up in the first place without some review to ensure that it meets with basic parameters of veracity and is not, uh, uh, doesn't amount to disinformation. So, uh, you know, I don't think this is an inherently negative step, but I think, uh, you know, it's all going to depend on how it's implemented and what safeguards are in place. Right. Well, let's move from Facebook to children's books. Uh, conservative media this week was was a fire about yet another instance of what folks were labeling cancel culture. This time it was over Dr. Seuss. Um, there are a lot of twists to the story, but one was that the um, children's author's estate uh, announced that it would stop publication of some of the beloved late author's titles because of their portrayals of racist imagery. It's confusing here. I mean, who who is being accused of canceling whom? And, you know, is this an instance of, say, the author's estate caving to political correctness or cancel culture? Well, look, you know, it's, it's sort of a classic instance of politicized grandstanding and conservatives who love to point a finger at Biden administration and suggest, you know, somehow the president has done something wrong by not uh, mentioning Dr. Seuss at a, you know, Read for America event. You know, it's an event that many of his predecessors never even marked at all. So, no, there is no obligation for every U.S. president to uh, herald Dr. Seuss from office on a given day of the year. Uh, That's just a silly claim. Uh, You know, I do think the larger question of what happens with some of these books is, a tricky one. You know, I, I certainly personally, uh, you know, to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street was a childhood a favorite of mine. I remember the book and the illustrations vividly. I can conjure up that offensive image of a very sort of stereotyped Chinese uh, man that appeared in one of the illustrations. And, I, you know, I definitely see why it's a problematic image. It was, you know, sort of a very is- exoticized um, 
kind of old fashioned notion of, uh, you know, what somebody in the 40s or 50s, you know, would have thought a person from China might be like never having perhaps, you know, uh, certainly not traveled there or even met anyone. And, you know, there are reports that Dr. Seuss himself was sensitive to this, uh, these issues, you know, was trying to break down racial barriers, you know, at times would revisit work years later and see the ways in which stereotypes were reflected. And, you know, if you think about just so much of our kind of canon uh, and just of works from the past, you know, reflect outdated attitudes and attitudes that are in some way harmful. I mean, you know, think of all the images of women in bikinis, you know, uh, in, in, in children's literature and, and film and elsewhere. And, you know, the uh, conceptions that were installed in generations of girls about what a woman's body should look like and, you know, what the consequences of that have been. And, you know, Charles Blow wrote a very affecting piece about, you know, what it was like growing up uh, black in America and just seeing white imagery everywhere and black caricature characters caricatured uh, and and portrayed in a, uh, a negative or dated light. And so, you know, I I, I think it's a tough issue. Uh, you know, I'm sort of sad to see these books disappear entirely. I wonder if there might be a way to accompany them. You know, with a thoroughly kind of contextualized look at, you know, what some of the questionable elements are to allow a parent or a teacher to spark a conversation with a young child, you know, but I also recognize they're children's books. And so while that might work well with Mark Twain and talking about some of the aspects of his work that are uh, outdated or that reflect racist attitudes, you know, I definitely think it's tougher when you're uh, reading a story to a three-year-old or a four-year-old and they're sort of looking at pictures. You can't expect them to uh, absorb and contextualize uh, in a way that an adult might. So I sort of see this as kind of a little bit of a, a sad outcome, um, you know, but I think absent a, a better solution, uh, you know, which I'm, I'm not sure exactly what it would be, but I, I hope the book's somehow don't disappear entirely, at least that people who want to see them and want to understand what Dr. Seuss stood for, the positive and the negative have an opportunity to do so. Yeah. Well, Suzanne, I just want to go last to Myanmar. Um, dozens of protesters killed this week as security forces seem to be escalating their crackdown. Um, and yet demonstrators, uh, staying in the streets, showing incredible resilience. But, you know, we've seen this play out in Myanmar before. Is there anything different happening this time? Well, there is a real sense of deja vu, you know, protesters out in the streets, uh, people being killed, rounded up in large numbers. For us here at Pen America, you know, one of the most sort of disturbingly uh, evocative aspects is we, in 2018, honored two Reuters reporters, Wallone and Chaseu, who uh, had been arrested for ex investigating and exposing a massacre of 10 Rohingya men in the village of Indin in Rakhine State and were imprisoned, uh, ultimately tried and sentenced despite a very powerful international campaign that we waged alongside 
many others just insisting that they were doing their jobs as professional journalists and in fact you know bringing really salient and important stories to public and global attention and you know that was the crime for which they were convicted and then ultimately we did have success in securing their freedom which was incredibly gratifying and getting the chance to meet them in person and so the news that we got this week that a reporter from the Associated Press or somebody, you know, presumably doing very similar work has now been picked up uh, and is being charged with uh, an offense to public order that could carry a sentence of, I think, three years or more is just deeply alarming. It's a sense of, you know, here we go again. I don't know, you know, and I don't think anybody can be sure what it would take to get the Myanmar military to pull back from the brink. You know, the one thing that has changed is you now have, although they're throttling back the internet, you have cell phone cameras uh, and and video and other imagery that may make it harder uh, or more reputationally damaging uh, to crack down to quite the degree that they have in the past. But yeah, this is a very impervious, Regime and they've they've demonstrated it by you know Aung San Suu Kyi just after she you know uh, wins with a large margin to you know have the audacity to you know simply detain her, hold her incommunicado, not even tell the NLD the majority party where she is being uh, uh, imprisoned. You know that that is how they operate, uh, and they you know what we see clearly is that. You know, while we sort of thought there were there was a, a, a democratic interlude uh, and democratic norms were taking hold, you know, it, it, it was even more fragile, I think, than anybody quite realized. Well, Suzanne Nossel, she is CEO of PEN America. She's also author of Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. Thanks, Suzanne. Thanks, Stephen. Sandaria Fay is an assistant professor at Southern Methodist University, author of the novel Mourner's Bench, and winner of the 2016 Hurston Wright Legacy Award. She's also leader of PEN America's Dallas-Fort Worth chapter, and she joins me now. Welcome to the PEN Pod. Hi, thank you for having me. No, it's a, a pleasure. Um, so, Sandaria, obviously, you, you, you do a lot of different things, and I, I, I wanted to start with um, an essay uh, you wrote this summer in The New Yorker about... Um, police breaking into your home with pretty alarming parallels to the killing of Breonna Taylor um, and so many other unarmed black people in the U.S. I'm curious for, for those who maybe have read it or haven't read it, what, what prompted you to write that piece? Well, it was a difficult piece to write. And um, when it happened, when the police came into my home, uh, knocked down my door and busted into my home, uh, I thought it was a b- bizarre incident and that it that it only happened to me and that I should just suck it up and go on, right? Like I I felt guilty that I hadn't, you know, protected myself in a certain way. I felt guilty that if the police come in your home, you must have done, committed a crime or something like that. So I just stuffed it inside and, and continued on with my life. And then Botham John was murdered in his home a few miles from me 
uh, for a few miles from where I live, and he was murdered in his home while, while eating ice cream. And I thought the innocence of both those incidents, the, uh, the innocence of sleeping, me sleep, being asleep, and him doing something just so normal that you were doing your home. And I wanted to write about it then, but I, the words just didn't come. I, I, so I felt like maybe, you know, I'm a fiction writer, so maybe this is not what I do is share things about my own personal life. But then, um, and the police continued to kill, uh, to murder more people. And I, then Breonna Taylor, and it just paralyzed me. Uh, We were home at the time during the pandemic as well. Uh, We were watching Mr. Floyd. Uh, That had already happened. So everybody's, uh, my feelings, I can't speak for everyone, but my feelings were raw. and I couldn't get it out of my head what had happened to to me as well. And I thought that maybe I should just journal about it or try to journal something about it just so that I could, that's how I release things is write about them. Mm -hmm. And then it occurred to me, like, what if my, my situation wasn't just a single incident? Look what happened to Breonna Taylor. And I've, it just propelled me to write about it, to give voice to, the people who lived and also give voice to the fear that maybe Breonna Taylor's and others like her that were no longer here to tell you how they felt at that moment in time. And that was the reason why I decided to go ahead and write it, write it down. And after I, after I finished journaling, I thought this, this should probably be published. And I, and I did, I, I, it was published in a New Yorker. And I think we're all grateful that it was because you, as you say, as a, even as a fiction writer and, and, and being able to bring this experience, I think to bear, especially when that piece came out in July was, was such a crucial moment. And in some ways, you know, presaged what we then saw more of through the summer and into the fall. I, I'm wondering what the reaction has been in those last five, six months since the piece ran. Well, I realized that many women had had done the same thing as I I had just swallowed it and moved on with their lives or or what they thought they had moved on with their lives. But even my own mother had had a similar incident where the police came into her, to her home with guns. And so from writing the piece, I had the opportunity to hear uh other women's stories uh uh or their incidents and how they had uh, gone on with their lives after it happened, and some of some people who had commented about the piece hadn't ever really talked about it before, and so I think it it did lend a voice to uh, many women who had been suffering with this and not even realizing that they had been traumatized by it. So I was happy that I did write it. It was it was interesting because. Uh, it was twofold. You, it, uh, the piece was traumatizing, uh, and it was somewhat traumatizing to write about it, even though it was a relief in the end. But it also was exciting to have the opportunity to be published in the New Yorker. So, uh, yeah, it's sort of, and it it still feels that way in a sense. We're we're obviously hopefully emerging from COVID nineteen. We're emerging from this Trump era. 
what's the role do you think that that writers need to play in the in the months and years ahead? We have to continue to write. I believe we are the honest voice of the people, similar to the uh, the piece that I wrote for the New Yorker. We are the voice for the, for the people. We are the truth tellers. Even in fiction, we are the truth tellers. And so we have to continue to write. And even beyond our pain, we have to continue to write. We have to continue to tell the story. And we we also find ourselves like myself being in positions of activism and so and community involvement. So you have to become you have to do that. It's uh, it's our role. It's what we do. And uh, I can't wait to see what uh, books come out of this um, situation. I hopefully I know that we will come through this. We are we're Americans. We that's what we do. But I, I'm looking forward to seeing what books, um, what books are published, who, who has the courage to step up and write about, um, about this time that we're in now. So, Sandria, you were talking about um, being involved in some of the activism around pay disparities in publishing, and in particular, reacting to the publishing paid me hashtag. I'm wondering what your involvement was like in that conversation. Well, I what I what I did once we were I was involved with the national uh, conversation about it that was led by Lisa Lisa Lucas and uh, of the National Book Foundation at the time she was with the National Book Foundation, but also here in Dallas uh, to show you how much Dallas has changed as a literary city. The Dallas Morning News ran an article about it. Uh, they we came to conclusion that there were only two black authors in um, Dallas that were that had books published with uh, with reputable publishers that would be able that if 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 they were to purchase that book that could be on the uh, New York Times bestsellers list. So that was one of the things that we tried to do was get. Uh, those two books on the New York Times bestsellers list. So, over the over the during the pandemic and through the uh, systemic racism and all of the issues that were coming up, I I believe that here in Dallas we did take a positive step forward, and we just have to continue to do that for um, for authors and for the city in, in general. But I want to say confidently that. Dallas is a literary city as of now. And it's because of all the work that writers have and publishers and bookstores and universities have been doing here in Dallas to make it a literary city. Uh, the media, everyone seemed to have come together and literature is finally important in Dallas. And so I wanted to stress that. And PEN America is one of the reasons why as well is primary one of the primary reasons why as well even though we have been continuing the work of pen america dallas during the pandemic we we've continued to keep uh the name uh out there and to do events and to uh virtually and so um which leads me to what i'm reading because i'm organizing the Dallas Literary Festival prevented, presented by Southern Methodist University, mm-hmm. which will which takes place March 26th through the 28th. And so my goal is to read all of the books that by the authors that's participating in the festival. 
And so right now on my nightstand is Mitchell Jackson's Survival Math, uh, Damaris Hill, A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing. I love that title. Mm -hmm. uh, ben Fountains, Beautiful Country, Burn Again. And Greg Brownville's uh, Book of Poems, A Horse with Holes in It. And one other, uh, Tiny Bajess's uh, Book of Poems as well, Olio. So that's what uh, that's what on my that's what's on my nightstand, and I go back and forth between them. Yeah, that's a tall order reading every book that will be featured in the festival. I yeah. but I I trust you can do it. I have no, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, the, the tallest order is organizing the festival. I'm the uh, executive director for the festival, so that's a much taller order. But we're I, it's going to be virtual, and also Pen America Dallas is a partner with us in that. And so that just sort of tells you uh, two years ago, three years ago, I couldn't even have imagined this. So that tells you how far we've come as a city. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and thanks to you, of course, for, for all the work you do. Um, author, speaker, Pan America chapter leader, Sandaria Fay, thank you so much. And thank you very much as well. And that's our episode for Friday, February 3rd. Join us next week for the Pen Pond. You can listen to all our episodes at pen.org. Follow us at Pen America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Stephen Fee for Pen America. This is the Pen Pond. See you soon. <laughs>